Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we sang very heartily, and rightly so. We believe in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you a question. Do you also believe in the teaching of Jesus? Some of you do. Well, I'm glad you do, because we're going to look at some of the teaching of Jesus this morning. Amen. So turn with me, if you will, or however else you bring up the scriptures nowadays, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to pick up in verse 19. Matthew 6, verse 19. I'm reading from the NIV version. If you've got a different version, forgive me. and There might be some slight differences. And this is Jesus teaching in the middle of one of his pretty long sermons. And he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24. Therefore, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I am aware that you've been exploring how Jesus answers some of the big questions in recent weeks, including what's wrong with the world and how can the world be put right. And so, in keeping with that series today, I'm going to seek to answer the question, what did Jesus have to say about money and possessions? Okay, and first off, let's make very clear, it wasn't Jesus who said money makes the world go right. I think the person who said that meant, in the sense that it seems to be in so many cultures, that money does seem to be the thing that drives everything. It wasn't Jesus who said that. Jesus did, however, have a lot to say about this subject. In fact, next to teaching about God's kingdom, about his Father, about the Holy Spirit and prayer, you'll find it's one of the top topics that Jesus spoke about. In fact, it's reckoned that money is mentioned in one of every four verses in the Gospels and that two-thirds of Jesus' parables relate to the right and wrong use of money and material possessions, including one parable that you'll find recorded in Matthew 25 that we tend to speak of as the parable of the talents, but if you read it carefully, verse 15 makes very, very clear it's about money. And from that parable, it is clear that our money is a trust from God, that we are to be good stewards of our money and possessions and to use them responsibly. As believers, as we've acknowledged in the songs we've sung this morning, we have been bought at a price. We're not our own, 1 Corinthians 6 says. All we are, all we have, belongs 
to the Lord. He's the owner, and we're the, we are but stewards. And that same parable also makes clear that we're not to be lazy, Matthew 25, verse 26, but rather we're to work hard and put to good use what we have, which from Old Testament scriptures includes sensible saving. You'll find that in various scriptures in the Proverbs and also leaving an inheritance for our children's children, Proverbs 13, 22. Personally, I think that what the Bible teaches with regards to money has best been summed up by John Wesley when he said, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. There's a good summary of what the Bible teaches in relation to money. We're to make all we can, not by cutting corners, not by dishonest gain, but by honestly working Hard, Proverbs 14, 23. We're to do it also by wise investing. We're to save all we can. For example, Proverbs 6, verse 6 tells us to observe the ants and learn from them. Did you know that? That they store up food for a future need. And in a similar way, we are to save. So when the ants are irritating you through the summertime, you just think, ponder the ants. It's biblical to do that, even if they might be an irritant to you. We're to save all we can, but also we're to give all we can. God wants us to be a to be blessed, to be a blessing, Genesis 12, verse 2. And the principle which Jesus taught in Matthew 10, freely you have received, so freely give, is to apply to our financial giving just as to other aspects of our life. In the matter of giving, Martin Luther said, every man needs two conversions. One is his heart, and secondly, his wallet. Billy Graham said, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. How we acquire and use money I guess we could say is an elementary test for every Christian whether you find yourself to be rich or poor. How we acquire and use money is an elementary test. Jesus said in explaining another one of his parables concerning the importance of being good stewards uh, of our master's possessions, he made the observation and the point whoever can be trusted with a very little can be trusted with much. But if you can't be trusted with a little, then you can't be trusted with a great deal. You see, we're either honest or we're not. And the temptation's there. Solomon, who of course is known for his God-given wisdom, says in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 19, money is the answer for everything. Now, we're actually not sure whether this was a wry comment on human values or advice to earn a good living or merely an observation on just how useful money is. But whatever Solomon meant, and the commentators are not in agreement on this, there's no getting away from the fact that money is important to our lives and thus it's a subject on which the scriptures have a great deal to say. So, so much so that time just will not permit us to explore 
the whole subject of what the scriptures say. So I'm going to try and confine myself uh, primarily to what Jesus had to say. But before we begin to delve into this and look more specifically at what Jesus had to say, may I question some of the images which you may have concerning Jesus and money? Because I've certainly had some of them in the past. For example, we tend as believers to make a big thing of the fact that unlike a recent royal baby, he wasn't born in the top private London hospital. That was confirmed, wasn't it? Okay. But he was, Jesus I'm talking about, he started life in the as the lowest of the low being born in a stable. We, we, we make quite a big thing of that. And indeed, the wonder is that he did leave the perfection of heaven and was born in a stable. But that doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph were penniless. In fact, if you look at the scriptures carefully, Joseph was looking for an inn to stay in. He was looking for a local hotel, but everywhere was full. The first gift Jesus was given as a baby wasn't the teddy bear. It was gold. As a man, he had an expensive, seamless robe. And he had a treasurer for his ministry. Thank God for treasurers and trustees. And there was clear evidence in scripture that his ministry wasn't without funds. For example... On the occasion of the feeding of the 5,000, well, it was 5,000 men, we're told, wasn't it? Plus women and children. By the way, they didn't run out of food, and I'm believing you won't next week, okay? I did whisper to, dare I say this, Dorothy? I did whisper to Dorothy, do you think they ran out of food in Newmarket because they eat like horses here? <laughs> I, I didn't mean that offensive. You've heard that expression, haven't you? I meant you're hungry, eh? Well, the feeding of, getting back to the feeding of the 5,000, I don't know when you've ever looked at it carefully, but Luke says in Luke chapter 9 verse 13 that Jesus told them, you give the crowd something to eat. Remember that? And Luke recorded that their response to him was that they only had five loaves and two fish. We're familiar with that, but we often stop there. But it actually says in Luke, We've only got five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for this crowd. And Mark goes even further in his record, Mark 6 verse 37, and he said that he records that they said to Jesus, it would take eight months of a man's wages to feed that many people. Most preachers stop at that point. But it says, and therefore they asked, are we to go and spend that much on bread? and give it to them to eat. There's evidence they did have money. See, we get these these strange images that they're going around like paupers, and the only place they get money is by going down to the lake and taking a coin out of a fish, etc. It's true, to bring some balance, that Jesus had no earthly home of his own, as he poetically put it, no place to lay his head, Matthew 8, 20. But Jesus in his ministry did have money. He also willingly allowed himself to be anointed with perfume worth a whole year's wages and he was buried in a rich man's tomb in fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. 
So, I say all that because I honestly believe it's wrong for us to have the idea that Jesus is completely against us having money and possessions. Okay? Indeed, he died that we might be blessed in every way. He made him, sorry, he himself this said that he'd come, did he not, John 10, as the good shepherd so that we might have an abundant life. And he made it clear that he wasn't the thief and the robber, that Satan was the one, not God, who was out to rob us of the blessings of God's abundant life. The Apostle Paul said, I know what it is to be in need and also to know what it is to have plenty. And the same guy who who wrote that said, he explained to the church in Corinth that as believers, although Jesus was rich, For our sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Now, I don't believe that the riches that Paul is talking about are just material blessings, but he is definitely talking in that context of when he said that, of money. He's talking about generous financial givings by the Macedonian Christians. And the emphasis in that verse is that Christ became poor so that you and I can become rich so that we are in a position to be generous financial givers. Amen? The good news of the gospel is that the eternal Son of God in his incarnation as a baby and in his atoning death on the cross in our place emptied himself of his riches so that we might be blessed in every way, beginning now and continuing forever. Hallelujah. I'm not suggesting it's right that we have a get-rich mentality. The emphasis of the scripture, God wants us blessed so that we can be a blessing. Before I became a church pastor, some of you will know I was in banking. I like to say I was in banking when it was a reputable career, okay? And I didn't earn the kind of money that uh, some of the stuff that you see in the press. But I was in banking, and sadly, I saw many people who had not mastered their money. You see, as Jesus pointed out, money is potentially a very good servant and a means of blessing both for you and for others. But it's a bad master with the power to become a rival God to the one true God. Hence Jesus said, as we read together from Matthew 6, you can't serve both God and money. You can only have one master. The issue of the rich young ruler, recorded in Matthew 19, who came to Jesus asking what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, was not his money and his wealth, it was more about his money and his wealth were his master, not his servant. It wasn't the fact that he was blessed materially. It was the fact that it had got a hold on him. It isn't that Jesus was is anti-rich people. Jesus did, however, point out that it can be hard for rich people to enter God's kingdom because of the hold over them which their riches can have. And he taught that for God to be truly our master, We have to put God first in everything. That includes our finances. Tithing, the giving 
of the first 10% of our income to the Lord, the practice of which, incidentally, Jesus very clearly confirmed in Matthew 23, verse 23, is a practical expression of putting God first. Tithing, when you study it out, and the giving of the first fruits in the Old Testament, they're interwoven. And it's, for us, we tithe on the first 10% as the first fruits of our labour. We're not, most of us are not working in agricultural uh, work or economy, but the first fruit, the money is the fruit of our labours, of what we work, we tithe on the first 10%. It's significant. For example, that when Jacob recommitted himself afresh to the Lord, following, you remember his dream that he had of the stairway between earth and heaven? When he recommitted himself back to the Lord, he re-established his tithes to God. Genesis 28, verse 22. And also, when the nation of Israel, whenever they turned back to God, they always re-established tithing. You see, they understood, it would seem, the importance of obedience to the Lord's command to receive his blessings in full. It's also significant that when tithing is spoken of in the scriptures, it doesn't say that God's people are to give their tithe. It always says they are to pay their Tithe. There's a subtle difference. This is because Leviticus 27 verse 13 makes clear that the tithe, the first 10% of our income and increase, belongs to the Lord. In fact, the scripture says, and is holy to him. And if it belongs to him, we pay it to him, we don't give it to him. To not tithe, therefore, as Malachi points out in Malachi 3.9, is robbing God. Now, some Christians I've found over the years try and argue that tithing is no longer a requirement for new covenant believers. As tithing, they argue, was old covenant law. But actually, the first mention, the introduction of tithing preceded the giving of the law and of the Mosaic covenant by some 400 years. It was when God had delivered Abraham's enemies into his hands and in response, Abraham gave a tithe of all his goods that they'd captured to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God. And significantly, the priest then blessed Abraham and shared bread and wine with him. Whoa, what a foreshadowing of what we live in the good of today. You'll find that in Genesis 14. Now, Please, hear my heart. Because I believe it's the heart of God and the heart that comes through Scripture. God doesn't want us to tithe legalistically. I remember years and years ago, I used to see someone and he tithed to the penny. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, every, every month whatever the check came in. Whatever. Now, part of me absolutely esteemed him. And please don't misunderstand me if you do. But God does. God wants us to be liberated in this. I mean, I'd rather round it up than tithe to the penny. I mean, that, that's just me. I, I, but God doesn't want us to be legalistic, um, and I've lost my place, in, 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 in our tithing. But he wants it to be from a heart of gratitude. 
Abraham set us the example right at the beginning. It was out of a heart of gratitude that he gave 10% to Melchizedek. And thus, Abraham, and, and incidentally, Paul, you remember, Paul describes Abraham as the father of the faith. He, he, he's like our ancestral father. And, and good fathers leave an example for, for those that follow on. So Abraham is our example. And, and, and so it's to be from a generous heart. It's to be an expression of our faith and trust in God as our provider and protector. Jesus clearly taught that we're to pay our taxes and also to pay to the Lord what belongs to him. Luke 20 verse 25. And incidentally, if you think 10% is a lot, I'm told Hindus give 50%. I haven't checked that out, but I was told that on, on good, a good source years ago. Psalm 24, verse 1. I love this. It's good to remind us of this this morning in the context of uh, what Jesus had to say, albeit it wasn't Jesus that said it in the Psalms. But Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, if the earth is the Lord's, it belongs to him. And so the tithe could be regarded as a bit like the rent that we pay to live on God's earth. I mean, if you don't own a house, you pay a rent to the person that owns it, don't you? The earth is the Lord's. We don't own it. He's the master. He's the owner. We're to be good stewards. We're to pay, as it were, the tithe for the privilege and, 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 and the wonder and the blessings of living on his earth, if that helps you to see that. And because we pay our tithe, then our giving by way of offerings and in other ways, strictly speaking, doesn't start till after the payment of the first 10%. And the Bible teaches that as believers, we are to give as unto the Lord. Giving by way of offerings uh, is to be, in other words, an expression of love to the Lord. Not, oh, I guess I ought to. But no, out of an expression of love to the Lord. David understood this. You remember King David? I mean, I know David was uh, known for some of the mistakes he made, and I guess some of us will be as well, but overwriting all of that, he was known as someone who had a heart after God. And David's heart with a heart after God, he determined, you find it recorded in 1, Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 21, he had determined he wouldn't give anything to the Lord that didn't cost him. And the Bible teaches us that we're to give in a regular, systematic way, in proportion to our needs, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8. We're also to give generously, 2 Corinthians 9. We're to give in expectation that God will meet our needs, Philippians 4. And we're to give cheerfully and not reluctantly or under compulsion, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And we're to give secretly, Matthew 6. Not to make a big song and dance, uh, you know, here's my offering this morning. You know. We're to do it, as it were, secretly. I heard of a church some years ago, and when the offering was taken up, they just did it spontaneously. They just let out a cheer. Because they got hold of the idea, God loves hilarious giving. 
and the offering taking up in that church was just a, was just another, I was going to say excuse, just to praise God, just to, just to, you know, just to exalt Him, you know. They got as excited about giving in their offering as you did this morning, uh, in declaring, we believe in the name of Jesus. I'm not sure they got quite as excited as, as certain supporters of a football team last night. But they got excited. Are you excited? About the things of God? About the teaching of God? Our giving, you see, is to be an act of faith. Trusting that God will keep his promises and supply all of our needs. That is, of course, subject to us living in obedience to his word, including seeking to live rightly and honestly, paying our taxes, treating other people and their property with respect. As part of um, Jesus' famous sermon on the mount that we dipped into this morning, he taught that if we make God and God's kingdom and the pursuit of righteousness, didn't he? As our first priorities, then God will provide our necessities of food, drink and clothing. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. He also taught that as we give, it will be given to us in a similar measure to the measure which we use. Luke six thirty-eight records that Jesus' instruction in this matter was, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know, it's evident from what Jesus had to say, when he watched how much the people were putting in the temple. Do you realise he watches what we put in? He sat there, he positioned himself one day opposite the temple offering box and he actually watched what people were putting in. And it's obvious from what he had to say to his disciples in teaching them it, that it's not the amount of giving which is important, but it's whether we give generously in relation to our means. Jesus explained to his disciples, I'm, I'm quoting now Mark 12 now, that a poor widow woman, many of you remember this, she'd only given two small copper coins. The commentators say it was worth about a penny in today's money. And Jesus said she's given more than all the rich people who had put large amounts into the offering because she had given all she had to live on. In other words, the measure she used on that occasion was a sacrificial measure. And I, I want to say, based on God's word, that would not have gone unnoticed by God. We know Jesus noticed, but you know what I mean? Father would have noticed in heaven as well, for we know from experience, the experience of the Roman centurion, recorded in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, that God doesn't just respond to persistent prayer, and let me say, that, mean, that doesn't mean opt out of the prayer meeting tonight. God does respond to persistent, consistent prayer. But he doesn't just respond to persistent, consistent prayer. He also responds to generous giving. 2 Corinthians 9. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, elaborated on this teaching of Jesus regarding giving. 
And he compared money to seed. He explains that just as a farmer uses some of his seed for food and some he sows for his future provision for a harvest, in a similar way, we have money. Some of which God intends us to use for our food and other needs and some for us to sow by giving to God's work and to the needs of others. Trusting, as we do that, like a farmer does, trusting for our future provision to come as a result of what we have sown. And just like Jesus said, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, remember this he says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Paul says that he, referring to God, who supplies seed to the farmer and bread for food will also supply and increase our store of seed. And he's referring to money. And he says, that we will be made rich in every way, here it is again, so that we can be generous on every occasion. Resulting, he says, in the needs being met, but also not just resulting in people's needs being met, but resulting in thanksgiving being given to God because of our generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 and 11. Years ago, When I was learning about God's way in relation to money as opposed to the world's way, bearing in mind I was a banker, got all my exams, got all the theory, got all the experience. But years ago I was learning how the biblical principles of sowing and reaping work and I was at a conference in Birmingham. I can remember it to this day. At the end of the session, I responded and went forward and knelt down at the front with others. In fact, I could even tell you two of the pastors that I was kneeling near. One of them still appears on one of the Christian channels to to this day. And I knelt down there, and we were encouraged to pray in tongues and to listen and respond to what God said to us, which I did. And as I prayed, I heard the Lord clearly say to me that as a church, we were to sow 100 pounds into the ministry who were hosting the conference in faith and expectation that we would reap a hundredfold return on the seed which we were to sow of a hundred pounds. How much is a hundredfold return? Anybody got uh, their maths exam coming up? What's a hundredfold on... 100. 10,000. 10,000 pounds, you're right. This is biblical, isn't it? Some, parable of the sower, some produces even a hundredfold return. I went home and I shared this with our church leadership team and we agreed together we would sow a hundred pounds in faith, believing for a hundredfold return from it. Okay? There had to be agreement involved. There had to be faith involved, back up 
It was in obedience to a specific rhema word from God. Months went by, and then suddenly, one Sunday, there was a check for £10,000 in the offering. I'm not lying, Dorothy will tell you, this is absolutely right. It was our hundredfold return. When I spoke to the church member who had given this sum, I discovered it was his tithe and what he'd received for his shares as a result of his employers being taken over by another company. So you work out how much he got. But for me, the exciting part wasn't how much he'd got or anything like that. The exciting part was, as I talked to him, that at the time the leadership team had sowed the £100 seed, there was absolutely no hint or thought of that company being taken over. God had seen the seed that had been sown and brought about the circumstances by which we received what we were believing for, our hundredfold return, £10,000. And I'll be absolutely frank with you and say, we didn't even have a specific need at the time. God was just teaching us how it works in the kingdom of God. You see, if you've got a need, then in faith you have to sow a seed. There was a time in our church years ago when we were getting into some understanding this and I don't know if it was Doris or someone decided we ought to have flower pots instead of an offering bag. I encourage people, come on, see it. You're sowing a seed. See, God doesn't want you poor. God isn't encouraging you to give to his work, etc. so you end up with less. This is a banker talking. I know when you look at it on paper, you are, but I tell you, God, you can't outgive God. He'll find one way or another to give back to you. Hallelujah. Where have I got to? See, and, and, and he doesn't expect anything of us that he's not prepared to do. God so loved the world that he gave. The most costly gift, didn't he? Of his own precious son. See, the, the Bible teaches us that we are to give first. Often we think, oh, I'll give when I can afford. No, no, if you've got a need, you've got to give in proportion to your means, even if it's only a small about like the widow's mind, but do it trusting and believing. God, I'm trusting you. I'm putting you first in this act. Give first. God so loved the world that he gave. He took the initiative and he gave first in expectation of a harvest of receiving, not money, but many sons and daughters, including you and I, friends. Hallelujah. In fact, Jesus spoke of himself as like a seed that would fall into the ground and die so that there would be a harvest of many sons and daughters. (coughs) In his letter to the church of Philippi, Paul uses another analogy, that of us having a heavenly bank account. Did you know you've got a heavenly bank account? Not with Barclays or any of the others. Who shall be nameless? Philippians 4, in Philippians 4, he speaks of how uh, their gifts had not only met the needs of his ministry, but how their giving had also meant that their heavenly bank account, their heavenly account, had been credited. The imagery is in keeping with the teaching of Jesus that we read from Matthew 6, isn't it? When Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in. Jesus, you remember, taught a similar message through his parable of the rich fool, recorded in Luke chapter 12. It would seem, if you look at it carefully, that he told the story in response to what appeared to be a dispute over the distribution of a family inheritance. There's nothing like a family inheritance to uh, after the death of someone, if there's not a clear... By the way, I do believe it's good, Christian, sound, to have a will, okay? That's just a freebie. But it looks like they haven't got a will or something in this instance. And it would seem that the man who appealed to Jesus for his help wanted a bigger share of the family inheritance than his brother. And Jesus was very clear. The first thing he said was that we must, he warned strongly that we need to be on our guard against all kinds of greed. So by inference, this brother wanted more. And then Jesus went on to tell the story of a successful rich farmer whose ground produced such a good harvest that his barns weren't large enough to store his grain. And so he decided he would build bigger barns and as he'd got plenty of good things, we're told, material possessions, laid up for many years, he decided that he would take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool. Tonight, your life will be demanded from you. In other words, you're going to die. Then, Jesus said, you will get what you have prepared for yourself. And Jesus explained, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for themselves, in other words, on the earth, but who are not rich towards God. Jesus wasn't saying it's totally wrong for you to have food in your freezer or anything like that. He was talking about priorities. He was talking, I hope you're catching the heart of what I'm saying. Now, let's wrap this up. Let's be very, very clear in case anyone gets misunderstood this morning. We can't buy our salvation. The price was paid. The person who kindly served the bread and the wine over this side, forgive me, I can't remember your name, was declaring, it is finished when he gave us the cup. Hallelujah. It's been paid for. We, 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 we can't earn it in terms of reading our Bible every day or in giving our tithing like that. Let's be very, very clear. But what we do in this life, including how we use our money and possessions, does affect the rewards in the next life. That's another whole message. And Jesus therefore taught that we must make sure that we have right priorities, including putting God first in our finances. And we need to be aware, friends, if you're not already, but it's good to be refreshed in these things, that money has the potential to be a rival God. Paul also teaches, we must not forget that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That the pursuit of wealth for our own gain, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, is deceptive, it's a temptation, and it can be a trap which can lead to ruin and destruction. In fact, he says, it can cause people to wander from the faith 
and to pierce themselves with much grief. And so this morning, I simply want to encourage you all to ensure that God is your master and that your money is your servant. For then, I guarantee it on the authority of God's word, it will be a blessing for you, for your family, and for others as you give generously as the Lord leads you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I wonder if you just stand with me. We sang a song, and it's a great little song, this morning about lifting our hands to him. And I just wonder, just without the music, I just want to invite you, I don't want you to feel under any compulsion. Just in the house of God, in this, this coming together, in this gathering, would you like to just lift your hands to the Lord as a simple act of fresh surrender to him? Hands open, not clenched fists. And I say that because not only is it a sign that you're freely given, but you're in a position to receive when your hands are open. I lift my hands to the coming King, to the great I am, to you I sing, for you're the one who reigns within my heart. And I will serve no foreign God or any other treasure. You are my heart's desire. Spirit without measure Unto your name I will bring my sacrifice Unto your name I will bring my sacrifice. Lord, I thank you for the generous givers in this body of believers. I pray for any that are struggling financially that fresh faith will have arisen in their hearts this morning. That as they seek to give generously but sensibly in proportion to the position they find themselves in, that you will see what they give and you'll give back one way or another. I pray for every one of us as we've lifted our hands to you in an expression that all we are and all we have is yours. Help us to use our homes, our cars, the different things that you've blessed us with to be a blessing to others, Lord God. I just ask you for that, Lord God. We thank you, written large in Scripture, that the Son of God emptied himself of all his glory and his majesty, that he who was rich beyond all measure became poor so that we might be rich. Not that we can just 
blob out and be like the rich fall, but so that we can be generous and a blessing to others. And so I want to ask you um, that as everyone here seeks to be obedient to your word, that you will bless them in abundance, Lord. That there will be stories and testimonies like I've shared this morning of response to them being obedient to the prompting of your spirit in this area of their lives. Bless them. Bless them abundantly. Pray, I pray for young people here. Young people, I began tithing at 16 the minute I got any pay. Scripture says, cast your bread upon the water. Talking of money is another analogy for money and it will come back to you. I just want to simply say to you, it doesn't come back on the first wave. And sometimes you've got to keep, you've got to keep on believing. To mix my metaphors for a minute, don't dig up your seed when you sow before you get your harvest. Trust God. Put God first in everything. Put God first in your relationships. Put God first in your finances. And God will bless you abundantly. Amen. God bless you all.